You ever get sick of reminders? You wish you remembered what it is that you actually had to do? Some of us have reminders that we wish we could forget. Maybe it's a reminder of a loved one that we lost, the hurt of a broken relationship in the past, or maybe even the past that we had been involved in that still haunts us to this day. You see, there are some reminders that are good reminders, and then there are some reminders that we would rather forget. And isn't it interesting that for us, many times, the reminders that we would want to forget are the ones that creep up? And the reminders that we ought to know better, we tend to forget. Well, today we'll be looking at some reminders that Paul brings up as he closes out this letter to Titus, in which he tells Titus to remind those under his care of the importance of living a life that was different from those around them. Number one, we're going to be looking at the new life, verses one through two, and number two, the old life, verse three. So we're just going to be looking at three verses today. Number one, the new life, verses one to two. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Remind them. We need reminders because we tend to forget what it is that we ought to do. Though many of us as disciples of Christ know what is expected, we need to be reminded because we tend to let areas slip up in our lives that we ought not to. In fact, what's interesting here is the idea is to keep reminding them. It's not a one-time reminder, it's a continual reminder. Keep reminding people to do these things because these folks will probably forget again. An elder's not to stop reminding the people of God what it is that God wants from them. It's when we forget and let things slip that we are in the most danger, are we not? To be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. What a start here for a reminder. A very straightforward statement, but that's very loaded with lots of pushback from people even today. The context is the Cretans who were known to be rebellious and pushed back against authority. In fact, they constantly pushed back against Rome. Here's the truth, believer. God has not called you or me to be revolutionaries in our culture. He's called us to be reformers. And revolutionaries tend to be the ones that want to burn everything down. You ever see that? You ever see revolutionaries in any historical context? What ends up happening many times is they try their best to push back against authorities to the point of taking the authority down and tearing everything apart. If you were to ask them what to replace with, they won't give you a good solution because their only goal is to take down what's already there. God has never called us to be revolutionaries as believers. God has essentially called us to be reformers, working as citizens in a nation that we are a part of to build a better society which honors Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're to reflect the majesty of Christ and his reign. Not just the one that's coming, but the one that currently is, because he's already given of himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. Christians whose first response is fighting back against authority have not heeded the text of Scripture, especially in areas that we would call fake persecution. I don't know if you've ever seen people that kind of put this persona out there that they've been persecuted for the Lord, and it's, odd, and it's very fraudulent. 
If your place of business is getting shut down due to, your, due to your Christian faith, and I mean legitimately, then that would be a form of persecution. If you're facing a fine because of not paying your taxes, that's not persecution. That's you being foolish. Babylon B has actually some great articles that hit this point well. And I'm not going to spend my time on Babylon B this morning, but there are a couple things that they brought up in one of the articles that I really just want to put out there that truly I've seen even in America, even in my life, has actually been what Christians have argued has been persecution. In fact, in their article, 10 Ways Christians Are Being Persecuted in America, here are a couple things that they give us illustrations. Sometimes people are mean on Twitter. It's horrible. Only Christians have to endure this treatment online. That's exactly what the early Christians must have felt like when they were burned alive. That's not persecution. I'm sorry. Starbucks still won't put Merry Christmas on their holiday cups. Every morning when you pick up your double peppermint oat milk latte with extra sprinkles, you're assaulted by their godless heathen holiday message. Sad. This last one really, unfortunately, is so true that I've actually seen it myself. One time a waitress got mad when I tipped her with one of those fake $100 bill gospel tracks. Well, excuse me, I'm trying to save your soul. Christians, that's not persecution. That's not persecution. Our faith must be genuine. And if preaching Christ is banned, or gathering for worship is, then that is when we have an obligation before God to follow Him in the sphere of influence in our lives, as we've talked about before. The sphere of influence in the home, government, and church should always be considered. And when that one steps out the, outside the boundaries of Scripture, it is God who we then should submit to. God should be obeyed. Praying for those over you, by the way, believer, is one of the greatest ways to learn to be subject to others. If your goal is to try to su submit to authorities without praying for authorities, you're going to have a very hard time. Prayer is important. It is one of the key elements to a good citizen that wants to be a part of a nation that they build for God's glory. The truth is, praying for those over you will help in submission to them. By default, you'll, you'll go to the renegade position. Because there's always something in you and I that wants what we want, and we don't care how we get it. In fact, the next phrase says, to be ready for every good work. To be ready for every good work. It's not simply enough for us to submit or to obey those in authority. We ought to have a readiness to do good works, believers. We ought to have a readiness according to God's standard. Here's where the church gets it wrong many times. The church thinks government is over here. I'm over here. I don't need to help them. I just need to submit in some ways to them. When Scripture actually calls for you to help support the government that God's placed over you in building a better life for the community that you're a part of. We are not to be some isolated bubble doing our own thing. We're a part of a greater context in our local community and in our state and in our nation. And the things that we do here locally in our church and in our school should reflect what we would like to present to our culture as la at large. 
Here's where a lot of the church gets it wrong. There needs to be a readiness to help those that are over us. It is not enough to complain about the government without trying to support the government in areas that God would want you to support. It's good to be willing to render help to those that are over us. And one of the ways that can be done by Christians today is in educating those in their society, in their society, which is essentially what we're trying to accomplish in the school. We are not just trying to further the kingdom of God. We are trying to help the citizens in our own nation. We're trying to raise people to be thinkers in our country. There's a reason why support groups many times have a Christian connection. I don't know if you've noticed that. Many support groups around the country have a Christian base. We as followers of Christ should be willing to help our nation whatever we can both to further the kingdom, making disciples, and also helping wherever necessary the government, from a government standpoint, providing the support that they would need in making sure that the citizens of our nation follow the principles of Scripture. Because the truth is, better citizens, according to Scripture, are going to be better citizens for any society. It is proper to be a good citizen, believer, and even a patriot that loves his country. Knowing that in one way you've been called to love according to Christ, you've also been called to be law-abiding citizens. The only exceptions you would ever find in the matters of biblical principles that are violated is when it comes to the apostles being told specifically not to preach the gospel. And in those areas, you and I are to disobey. Of course, there's plenty of contentious debate over many of the things that have happened the last couple years and whether we love the Lord or don't based on what the government's told people to do. But I think sometimes we're more about what we want than about what Christ wants. And if I was to be perfectly honest, I'm that way too. I'm not really caring too much about what Christ would want in a situation as much as I care about whether or not I've got my support group that wants what I would present to them. We need to be careful of that. To speak evil of no one. That's the next phrase here. To speak evil of no one. The idea here is not merely gossip, but rather slandering someone else. In fact, the context here is slandering those that are in authority over us. Particularly the government. There are many scenarios where we fall for the slander of authorities based on hearsay rather than actual factual evidence. We miss it, and if we're not careful, we are doing damage to our own testimony. You see, slanderous things said about others should never come out of our mouth. It is not becoming of a child of God. We must be careful as people of God to not fall for the first message, article, or video clip sent our way regarding another brother or sister, government official, etc. doesn't matter who it is. The first message that we come across should not be taken as gospel automatically. I don't know if you've ever shared an article only to regret that you shared the article. I know I have. When you found out the facts were really not on your side. When somehow the truth changed. We need to be careful, Christians. We need to be careful that we're not slandering those that God has not in any way given us permission to do so. 
There are plenty of things that are shared which are partial truths or flat-out lies, and we accept them as full, completed, actualized fact, even though they are not. I mean, I'm going to mention one that I know I see all, on Facebook all the time. Not everything tied into the gas prices is Biden's fault. I hate to break it to you. A little more complicated than that. You can't credit the guy too much. You can't blame him too much. There's literally a lot of nuance there. And we need to be careful. The only thing you can hold to that's absolute in truth is God's word itself. This is the only thing that you can say is absolutely, without any hesitancy, absolutely true. I don't care how many news articles you read, there's going to be a lot of bias in there and very slanted, picked out truths. Meaning, if some incident happened, they're not going to present you with every single fact. They will give you the facts that they would like to present and leave some of them unsaid. I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't know if you've ever taken any story and read what Fox News says about it, MSNBC says about it, CNN says about it, and watch the different narratives that are set. And I know, by default, some of you are like, oh, well, Fox News is right. Well, are they? The truth is, only Scripture can be stated as absolute truth. Scripture says, by the way, that all men are liars. Did you know that? That's something you might want to consider. We don't need to continue to promote lies ourselves as believers. We are to be people of the truth. Which is one of the things that I think fascinates me as a pastor. I see a lot of Christians that are way more political than they are biblical. They care way more about sharing politics online than God's word. They care way more about being right about the debates and skirmishes they have with their buddies than they do about making sure God's word is what is out there for others to see. And I'm not talking about the hyper-spiritual jockey that literally throws Bible verses every single day. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about those that can see what Scripture says, see what culture is doing, and try to understand how this works. You see, here's the part that's really difficult for a lot of us. It's this last phrase in this section. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. If someone was to ask you your demeanor... And how you interact with others. Is that some way that they would describe you? Yeah, that brother or that sister, they're very peaceable. They're gentle. They're easy to talk to about things. Or do you come back aggressive? Like your demeanor is very much antithetical to what it's saying here. The truth is your demeanor matters in how you interact with others. You know you can say the same truth in two different ways? Actually, you can say it in many different ways, to be honest. Have you ever seen someone try to share the truth in a very harsh, disgusting manner? And seen that same truth mentioned in a gentle, peaceable manner? Now, I know there's, 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 a, there's a tension here, right? Because Jesus calls out the Pharisees pretty directly. At times. And at times it comes across pretty harsh. Why? Because Jesus had a very different approach for those that were very self righteous and full of themselves. 
This is the standard that we should approach all people with because typically that's how people are. The very self-righteous, they're typically in a very elitist category. They're in, in their own box, if you will. Everybody else owes them. If someone was to describe you, would this be a phrase that they would use? That you are peaceable, gentle, and you actually show humility to others when you, can, you converse with them. Or you follow yourself, your opinions. Are you known as the hothead that always speaks his or her mind? If you're around other people and they know you're about to blow up every time, that's not a good reputation. That's not a good testimony. You don't get along with others because you still have something to prove since you were a little boy or girl. Not good. It's a wonderful trait that many of us want to instill into our children, parents, that they should stand up for their beliefs. But many times the attitude behind that is something we should be training them in as well. And, and, I, and I catch myself in this trap many times when I see influences in my children's lives that I don't agree with. I see certain things that people are doing differently than I do, and what I end up doing is judging them. I tend to go, well, I won't let my kids do that in a very prideful manner. As if God does not require certain things of me to be done in humility. What's unfortunate is the attitude behind our children's lives is not cultivated by us as parents. Instead, what you find are parents who are out there trying to tell others they have it figured out while pointing out all the flaws in other families. I have to really bite my tongue on this because I've yet to find the perfect family in the Bible. Greatest men and women that you see in Scripture did not have perfect families. In fact, I have yet to see a Bible study on the model family, King David and his family. No, it's not there. Abraham and his kids, not there. And yet, we think we figured it out today, didn't we? Be careful. In fact, the demeanor in their lives was such a value of Christ that people saw that, even if they did, disagreed with their faith. In fact, one historian said that during this time, Christians commanded a higher price because the master knew that people would serve well. They would serve honorably. We should show humility to others, believers. It's not about you and what you have to prove. It's about him. Exemplify him. We shouldn't be about the business of trying to prove our kids are better than someone else's, as if God's going to sit there and care about that. God does not care about that. God is not going to go, yeah, you know, compared to so-and-so, you did a better job. Proud of you. Never been the standard. He's going to ask, well, according to the truths that I have revealed to you in my word, what have, what have you done? 
We are to exemplify Him. So here's where Paul contrasts what they ought to be with what they once were. And this is an important thing. This is stated to believers that need to still remember not just what they ought to be doing, but what they ought not to be doing. Paul never gives you only one half of that equation. Paul always tells you, stop doing this, start doing this. He gives you both. And if we as people of God cannot handle both, we're not being honest with the text. Number two, the old life. Verse three. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He starts off by saying, for we ourselves were also once foolish. You and I live the life of the fool before God. Before we knew God, we were foolish. And this foolishness manifests, manifests itself in many different ways, does it not? Scripture tells us that the fool hates to be instructed. Let me, let me say that one more time. The fool hates to be instructed. Which is, why, which is why a Christian who doesn't care for the Word of God is going back to living like a fool, and they don't even realize they are. If a Christian goes, you know what, I don't need God's Word, I don't really need the people of God, I'm all set, you're a fool. And you're living like one. You're going back to your old habits. Fools, according to the book of Proverbs, are quick-tempered, while the wise who live in the fear of the Lord are calm when they're insulted. Kind of goes back to what Paul has just stated. When a Christian is quick to respond in anger, they're going back to their foolish ways that they are now to avoid. Fools care only to air their own opinions rather than gathering more understanding from others. You ever been in a, in a conversation with multiple people and there's that one person that doesn't get the conversation? They're like the oddball. Everybody gets what we're talking about except for that one person and that one person pretends that they know, have no clue. It's like way over their head. And yet they're still kind of trying to play along See, the truth is, a fool doesn't care for understanding. They don't care to really learn more. They care to air their own opinions. Well, I think. My thoughts are. Which is unfortunately what you see in a lot of Christian circles today. A lot of Christians go, I don't need this. I don't really think God is like that. Uh, God is more like what I think he is. God would never do that. God would never judge people. I mean, this whole thing of hell, I mean, really, the church must have invented that. That's essentially what a fool does. They make up their own garbage and think that that's truth. And you know what they end up doing? They mock Christians that believe the truth. A fool lives like there's no God. And unfortunately, many a follower of Christ do as well, do we not? 
How often are you reminded that God is watching you every single day? That Christ is there? That the Holy Spirit's indwelling you? Is it only on Sunday morning we wake up and go, oh, today I'm coming to worship? How was yesterday? How was last week? How much do we pay attention? You see, the truth is, many, a follower of Christ, live as if God doesn't exist. They're practical atheists. And here's how they live. They don't need the Word of God. They don't need the people of God. They don't need to be told what to do. They have it all figured out. In fact, back in Proverbs 14, verse 9, you see that fools mock sin and those that seek restitution. Did you know that? A fool will mock the things of God. So much so that they will mock people that try to get things right with God. You've ever been around people like that? They're not just... They're not just offended that you called them on something or God's called them on something. They're offended that you're trying to make those things right in your life. It is literally the person that goes, no, don't tell me about my flaws. Those aren't even flaws. They're good. When their whole life is shattered. A person that doesn't believe they're in sin is acting as a fool. And many a Christian has been deceived in this area, acting foolish while professing to be wise and knowing God. You see, the truth is this. Here's what fascinates me as a pastor sometimes. Is I know many, and I'm talking many, from when I was a child and growing up to being a teenager, a young adult, and now where I am today, middle-aged, adult almost, or dwelling. I don't know how many years I've left. As I've watched other believers that walk away from God, they don't care for the things of God. They're, they're literally pushing back on what it is Scripture calls them to. They're living in sin. And yet they have the audacity when you have a conversation with them to go, I know what God wants me to do next. And you look at those folks in, in just absolute terror because they don't realize they're deceived. They're deceived. And what's even more unfortunate is a lot of these people think that they can come back to God whenever they want. And they don't realize that there is a wall that's been built up in their fellowship with God that is so thick right now that it will take an absolute miracle for them to come back in fellowship. And I'm talking believers. I'm not talking about the unsaved that's spiritually dead. This is a reminder here to stop living like we once did. Believer, we should not be living foolishly. Next word that's used here is disobedient, as contrasted to submitting and obedient law-abiding citizens. All we knew was our own way. And when we didn't get our way, we would definitely tell God that. That's why a lot of us have had terms when it comes to the things of God. God, if I do this, please make sure you do this for me. 
That demanding little childlike attitude that many of us carried over from when we weren't saved to when we were. What's amazing is how many of us still are disobedient to the words of Scripture while thinking we're somehow standing up for what's right in our vile disgust for those in authority. I want to be careful that in your anger towards those that are in authority, you really are following God. Because that's contradictory. We get upset at our children for not respecting our authority when the examples that they've witnessed from us help pave the way. You show me a parent who's really frustrated that their child does not respect authority, and I'll show you a parent that truly doesn't look in the mirror enough. Our children learn it from us, not just everyone else. And even if you were to argue that our children learn it from everybody else, God has placed them under our authority, and we should be putting them in the environment that they can best learn, which is why it's foolish for parents to put them in an environment that absolutely corrupts. How do we talk about others in authority around our children? Do our children see that we respect authority or not? Or have we set up ourselves as some little God that our children bow to while everybody else is antithetical to our way of living? No one does it the way we do it in our house. Parents, be very careful with that. Do they know that we respect the leadership that God has placed over us or not? A good leader is one that also knows how to submit to those over them as well. Every leader has to be a follower in some ways. If you can't follow, you can't lead well. In fact, Jesus himself submitted to the will of the Father. That was his authority. Do they hear us praying for those in authority or only complaining about those in authority? Do our children hear us praying for our country more than complaining about our country? Next word here, deceived. Deceived. Here's the big one. This is in reference to what we once were, by the way. Deceived. Yet what we see today are scores of followers of Christ who are deceived as well. The idea here is the idea of going astray or being misled. In fact, you have a cross-reference in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul warns Timothy in a similar situation to Titus to warn people about this. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, or latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. 
The idea here is essentially that's described as asceticism. And asceticism taught that abstinence from physical things was a way to please God in the spiritual realm. It was an absolute requirement, according to them, for spiritual purity. Essentially, additional regulations that God never placed in his word were added by those who gave into deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You see, when you look at a text like that, you tend to think, well, the wrong way would be taking away from what Scripture says. It's just as demonic to add things that Scripture doesn't say. When someone holds to a certain diet as a mandatory diet from God, they need to be careful because they may be outside the boundaries of Scripture as these people taught. True holiness doesn't come from merely a new list of do's and don'ts, believer, but rather from an understanding of Scripture in its proper context. In fact, the dietary laws of the Old Testament have never been commanded in the new for the Gentile believer. Never. We are free to eat. And to argue that something would still be required, that God required only of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, would be imposing something that God never imposed, which is frankly dangerous. If we have a personal conviction about it, we would like to stick to certain things that Scripture reveals in the Old Testament. That's perfectly fine, as long as we're not imposing that on someone else. But as soon as we cross that threshold and go, you know what, brother, sister, you better do it this way because this and this verse in Leviticus really taught that. And God completely says, you know what, I don't have any of those regulations for believers that are Gentiles in the new. We are going against his word. In fact, that was an argument in the early church. We worked through that in the book of Acts. Deception is greatest when we least expect it. We, when we least expect it to be visible in our lives. Else it wouldn't be deception, would it? If you could see deception coming, you wouldn't see deception then. Because it wouldn't really be able to get us. There's a false sense of separation from things that makes us automatically more holy when Jesus himself said it's the inside that matters most. A lot of Christians try to cut off everything external in their life thinking that it'll somehow make the internal work better. What they don't realize is the internal that has to be started with. I always love the phrase that Casting Crowns has in one of their songs. And it's always stuck with me because I understand where they're coming from when they make the statement. And Lily says this, says, God's got to change her heart before he changes her shirt. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are trying to change the exterior. Now, yeah, you need to have standards, by the way. I do want you to pause for a moment and realize we need to have standards in the school and in the church. But what I'm saying is, at large, what we tend to do many times is try to put these parameters on people and say, if you don't follow this, then you don't love God. We need to go for the heart, because that's what God wants. We need to go to a brother or sister that's kind of doing things that are not what Scripture wants and go, hey, listen, I just want you to understand, I know this isn't necessarily a sin, but you need to be careful because it might lead down this path. That's totally a different conversation than going, you're doing this, and it's a sin, and it's not. We need to be very careful. Cutting off to make ourselves feel better may seem like the spiritual thing to do. But if we're not careful, it can very well be self-deception. 
which is one of the saddest things that I think happens in the church. I'm going to park on this one for just a moment. There are many that have been hurt by people in the church. Valid statement. There's no debating. What's heartbreaking is that that reason is then used for why they will never, ever be a part of another church again. We blame the incident that happened in our life on everybody else that didn't have anything to do with it. And we make everybody else pay for that one person's sin. And we need to be careful, believers, that we don't judge other people based on someone else that did us wrong. Oh, there are scars, and they're really deep. I'm not minimizing any of that. But what's really heartbreaking is a brother or sister will walk away from the fellowship of the believers because of some incident they had with somebody in the church, and they will blame the whole church for that one incident. Rather than coming back and going, listen, I want to make sure I make those things right with that person, they avoid that person and the rest of the, the biblical congregation. They're essentially saying, I can't, I can't stomach working this out, so I'm going to make sure I blame everybody else too, so I feel better that I'm walking away from everyone else. How many of us would really walk more faithfully with God if we didn't take that one offense against a brother or sister so personally that we had it affect everybody else in our lives? Many have been deceived throughout the centuries by fraudulent holiness set up by man-made doctrines that are really demonic. To the point of marriage being something that was to be abstained from in order to serve the Lord. That's demonic. Paul was single. Paul never said being single is what every Christian should do. That's demonic. That is literally claiming I will, we will serve the Lord by separating from what God himself has created humanity to do. Be fruitful and multiply. That is literally denying the creation order. Creation ordinance that was set right in the beginning of Genesis is to be denied by those that claim to be more spiritual. People's consciences were so affected by deception that the very things that should be enjoyed in this life, like marriage and food, weren't allowed to be enjoyed because guilt was laid on them by false teaching. Next phrase we see here, serving various lusts and pleasures. We all have our go-to desires and coping mechanisms, do we not? We've had them before we were Christians, and we've carried them into our faith. We should not be deceived. What should not be a part of our lives is a service or passion to those things still. And yet many Christians still serve their former passions. What's interesting is that we get the word hedonism from pleasures. And the word itself is used in the parable of the sower, where the word is choked out by the pleasures of this life. Essentially, it could very well be that we re what we relied on in the past 
we go back to and think that the Word of God is not enough. Those are those cares. You ever done that as a believer? Oh, I've dealt with it in the past. It's all set. Pops right up again. It's like whack-a-mole. Still popping up. Except the danger of sin is it's more deadly. It's more enticing than that, too. It's not so evident that it's whack-a-mole. We don't even see it coming. It's more like a snake slithering up on us. James talks about the inner desires that war inside of us, pulling us away from God and into a friendship with the world. We essentially tell others outside the faith that we love God, but we join them in the very same pursuits apart from God, do we not? Oh, we love God, but we're pursuing the same things you are. We really love the Lord. The only difference between you and me is I'll go to church on Sunday once in a while. If our children are there to fulfill some need in our hearts that was only meant for God, then they will disappoint us when they walk away and we're crushed. Your children are never meant, parents, to meet the need of God. Your spouse was never meant to meet the need of God in your life. If the job or ministry that God's blessed us with has made us more full of ourselves and our accomplishments, then we miss the point. And it's in those areas that we walk in pride that God will humble us one day. God brings proudful or prideful people down. We need to be careful. Don't think that God can't take away the very thing you've replaced him with. Don't think he can't. Many a believer have learned that lesson the hard way. I put all my time and energy into this one thing. I thought it was worth it all. And then God was replaced with them. And God took all that away from me and I came back to him. Some are passionate in an ignorant way in the church. That's why we should develop in our understanding of who God is as Paul does. What's sad is many believers wane in their passion for God himself and the things of the word. So many Christians, when they first come to Christ, they're so passionate. They're ignorant, but they're passionate. And yet, what we develop in our knowledge of Christ, you would think the passion would still continue to grow, but it wanes. A passionless Christian is frankly a Christian that doesn't have their priorities right. Which is one of the reasons why Bible study, if it doesn't excite you in any way to know God more personally and intimately, is really a problem with your heart. It's not with God's Word. God's Word is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the very heart that you have. Unfortunately, sometimes you and I are just stubborn. We don't care to do what it says. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, which is why serving those desires will never end well for a child of God, ever. Being passionate about him and finding pleasure in God himself is what it's all about as a believer in Christ. 
Every one of us as believers should be more passionate about Christ today than we were yesterday. Should be more thrilled with the Word of God today than we were yesterday. Should be more thrilled about being in fellowship with other believers than we were yesterday. But all of those things tend to kind of have a roller coaster effect on many of us. And here's what's stunning. A lot of people are like, yeah, I love God. I'm so passionate about His Word. And you see their attitude to other Christians, and you're going, what part of the Bible did you read? Your version? Throw it on Bible Gateway. Selfish, carnal version. Where it's all about me. You shouldn't have just the good old days when you first met Jesus. You should be more satisfied with him today. Isn't that true for all of us? In every relationship, we should know people better. Isn't it sad that so many of us slip in these areas? We once really had a thriving relationship with that person. But time's kind of passed, and we're not as excited anymore. We're distracted. We're more easily thrilled by other things. Or we're pursuing things that we think would improve this relationship, but we separate from it, hoping that we can come back at a later point. It's unfortunate that a lot of Christians make this statement, and it's true throughout centuries. When I get to this stage, then I'll serve God. When I've taken care of these things, then I'll serve Christ. God's not waiting for the perfect you to serve him. In fact, the perfect you has never existed and never will exist. He took you as you were and made you a saint. You're qualified because of Christ. Now get to work. One of the worst examples of a Christian is a self-pity Christian. The one that whines and complains about everything in their life isn't what it should be. God isn't that good. People are so terrible around me. And what you literally look at them and say... What is it that Jesus has done for you that you just can't see anymore? Why would someone like you even want to enter glory? You already hate it here. And you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. If it bothers you that others are passionate about God, while you're not, it might be good to stop and consider why that is. Jesus should be more satisfying today. Living in malice and envy. The idea here is simply to do harm to others and having displeasure at the good or happiness in other people's lives. The unregenerate man can't help but seek malice or harm to others they don't like. They enjoy seeing others in pain that they believe deserve it. The dissatisfaction with their own condition is brought out in their attitude toward others. The scary thing is that this mentality is still prevalent in the church today. Which is why Paul makes a point in Ephesians to state that this is something that you and I need to put away. There are many a follower of Jesus that have ill will towards those that are doing better than they are in the church. That is not the way it should be, brethren. God has called you to more than that. Take Job's example and ask if you'd want to swap with him. 
There are those that secretly wish, maybe even pray, that God makes others as miserable as they are to teach them a lesson. That's how vile we can be. God, everything's fall apart in my life. Make sure it does in theirs as well. All the while, they don't realize that they'll be going around that same tree again themselves. It's truly a wicked heart that seeks the harm of others with an envy that burns for the things that others enjoy. This may be the reason why the writer of Hebrews warns against this very thing in stating that we ought to take caution, beware, lest in any of us there is an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. We all have the temptation, believers, to go back to what we once practiced and lived. And unfortunately, some of these habits have still been in our lives. The last thing that we see here is hateful and hating one another. Hateful here is the idea of actively hating good things and denouncing others in the view of oneself with the preference, belittling others. This is a person that despises who they are and how they live so much that they actively protest those who live godly lives in opposition to their sinful one. It's not enough for them to reject the truth of God's word. They willfully reject it with an animosity towards the holiness of God. And the people who seek to live by those principles. This is the state of an unregenerate man that hates when others live by the standards of Scripture, so much so that they denounce them in public while trying to bring closure to their own depravity. Do you want to know why the world hates when Christians speak on certain moral issues? Because it rubs them the wrong way. And they would want nothing more than for a believer to fall into the very thing that they're doing so that they can feel okay. A believer who despises a brother is not walking in the light, as John tells us. Which is why we ought to be very careful how we evaluate one another's spiritual walks, believers. Let's, let's stop doing fruit inspector every single day. Everybody likes to examine everyone else's fruit. Eh, nothing's growing over there. <laughs> a little bit. Seeing a little bit. Is that what God's called us to be? No. Yes, we are to examine the fruit of false teaching. That's essentially what Scripture calls us to. And by that, there will be works coming out of that. But you and I aren't to go around every single day trying to examine everyone else's fruit. We're supposed to be examining the fruit in our own lives. That's where we should start. Sometimes the greatest discouragement to the faithful, faithful follower of Christ is not the person out in the world. It's rather a brother or sister who minimizes their walk or desire to walk with God. The greatest way to put out someone's fire in the church is to literally put out the passion that they have for the things of God and the holy walk that they want to have before him. You'll do more damage than the world will sometimes. They expect that from the world. When we do it, it's an added burden. When a backslidden Christian puts out the fire in another brother or sister's pursuit of God, they essentially hate them rather than love them. All of these things mentioned are there to remind us, church, of what it is that God's called us to as saints. So in conclusion, 
Simple question, but it's loaded. Are you living the difference? Are you living the difference? Can you say that it's clear to those around you that you do respect those that God has placed over you? That's one of the tests that we see here in this text. Do your children see a parent that's willing to help others that God has placed over them, or do they see you complaining while you help them? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll help them. They don't pay me enough, they don't do this, I can't stand them. The heart behind it matters. Are we careful in how we speak of others? Do you pause before you say something about someone else? Do others see a heart for God or a bitter heart towards others? Let me put it this way. You can't have a pure heart before God while you're bitter at your brother or sister. You can't. Do we tend to lose our cool or can we be described as being patient and gentle toward others? It doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, closed off and not as outgoing. You can be outgoing, you can be closed off, but the truth is, are you gentle when someone confronts you on something? It doesn't matter what personality you are. Can you take it properly? This is a learned discipline in the church. When you're younger, you tend to blow up a lot easier. What's really sad is when someone's older in their years and they still blow up easily. Are we telling others that God is the pilot while we're trying to take control of everything that comes our way? Have we added some things thinking we somehow are closer to God when all it is is making ourselves an idol? I have built my shrine to my own personal God that I've created all the while thinking it's God. I was not impressed with that. So much so that when the Pharisees were approached by Jesus and they're like, we're the sons of Abraham, Jesus tells them directly, you're the sons of Satan. And it's his desires that you want to do. Are you going back to the things that made you temporarily happy and wondering why you're miserable as a Christian? Maybe you went back to the wrong thing. Have you found others that are faithful almost like an irritation in your life? Like it irritates you that others are living faithfully and they're doing it God's way. Like it almost bothers you that they're doing it right. Be some area to pause and think about. Like your issue isn't with them. Your issue's in your own heart before God. We almost want them to fall into sin so we feel better about our own present state sometimes, don't we? We see another brother or sister that's living more faithfully, they're doing things God's way, and we're not. Things are kind of falling apart in our own relationships. It's not going so well in the house. We almost kind of want others to struggle in that same way so we feel better about ourselves. And there is something to being around other brothers and sisters that have gone through things and worked through certain things. But desiring, that's a whole other level. Wanting that somebody else goes through what you're going through because of your own sinful choices is a whole other area. Christ is the one that we should be living for, church. He's the one that we know has made all the difference in our lives. 
Why should we pursue anything or anyone else but him?